0: Today I have the great pleasure of introducing a friend and mentor Lisa Heshong. Ms. Heshong is a fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society. She was a founding principal of the Heshong Mahon Group. HMG, and a licensed architect for 30 years. She has a Bachelor's of Science from UC Berkeley and a Master's of Architecture from MIT, where she was awarded the AIA School Medal. At HMG, Ms. Heshong led the research team that found a correlation between daylight in classrooms and improved student performance. As chair of the IES Daylight Metrics Committee, she's helped establish a new set of climate-based daylight performance metrics including SDA, and ASE. She currently serves as chair of the IES Medal Committee. She also serves on the board of directors of Ecology Action, an environmental nonprofit, the advisory board of the Richard Nutris Institute for Survival Through Design Foundation, and the executive committee of the Santa Cruz chapter of the International Dark Sky Association. In 2011, she received the Haker Award for Lifetime Achievement, from the Architectural Research Center's consortium. She is author of Thermal Delight in Architecture, which was her master's thesis at MIT, and co-author of Residential Windows, A Guide to New Technologies in Energy Performance, along with numerous technical papers on energy performance of buildings. Her newest book, which we'll talk about today, Visual Delight in Architecture, Daylight, Vision, and View explores new findings on the physiological, cognitive, social, and cultural importance of daylight and view in our everyday environments. When not on a Zoom call, Lisa loves to sail with her husband in Monterey Bay, ride their horses in the Santa Cruz Hills, and play with her rapidly growing grandchildren. Welcome, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Julia? I'm great. I'm excited to chat with you again. It's always so much fun. So today we are doing a podcast in the series called Learning from the Greats. And you're one of the greats, in my opinion. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. And first, for folks who don't know who you are yet, how'd you get to where you are now? I became
1: an architect for a couple of reasons first i discovered that i loved geometry and that i just thought that was the funnest thing ever i loved putting things together three-dimensional geometry rotating space in my head and just like well this is this is great fun i want to do this in junior high school in a drafting class that i talked my way into (laughs) (laughs) and then I also realized growing up in Los Angeles that I loved where I lived, but it was felt like it was being destroyed Mm. by developers and by thoughtless buildings. And that really hurt. And I wanted to find a way to help make cities better. So originally I thought I'd become a city planner and I'd help make beautiful cities. I realized that took a lot of education and I had to start with architecture. So I started there and then I fell in love with design and became an architect and got
0: stuck doing architecture. (laughs) I love it. I wouldn't say you got stuck. You've made your way, carved out your own path here. And one of the things that before I met you, before I knew who you were personally, if I heard the word thermal delight... It was synonymous with Lisa Heshong, And so that was one of the first books we had to read uh, when I was in design school. A book that you wrote during your master's degree. It was your actual thesis, is that correct? That's correct. And then you have a new one that's just recently come out. uh, So Visual Delight in Architecture. So I think that's where I wanna start is, is how you've divided Visual Delight. There's these four main parts and kind of what informed that progression and maybe just the thought process behind that.
1: Well, the structure was absolutely taken from Thermal Delight. And Thermal Delight somehow just organically found these four chapters. So they weren't parts, but they were chapters, which was necessity, which is the physiology piece. And then the second was delight, which is the sensual and perception piece. The third chapter was affection, which was about the emotional and social connections. And the fourth chapter was sacredness in Thermal Delight about deeper cultural meanings. And I had found that four part way of thinking about design problems from physiology through to culture and from our internal genetics out to the individual, to the social group, to the larger culture as a really useful construct. And so I decided to repeat it for this book. Affection and sacredness didn't really apply to the visual world in the way that I was talking about it and so then I started looking for what the right words were, and they just kind of came out of the writing. Um, The the first is really about prediction. Impels you to do things, and sort of the whole society is impelled why they do these things. So that one came in, and then meaning is a cultural version of sacredness. And what I was really interested there was how you transmit this knowledge from one generation to the next which I think is one of our uniquely
0: human capabilities. And I think that's such a great perspective of how to understand buildings from all those different scales. And we've talked about before that focus on personal experience and sort of how that builds at different levels. And so, again, looking at those different senses, I don't know, when I read both of them, it just made me think about things in a different way and I think you've succeeded when you can make people think different ways or help them understand through a different lens at least.
1: Well, I think it, it is fairly unusual to posit that both we have very physical reactions because we're an animal and we're reacting to environments a lot of the same way that other mammals do, for instance. But that also, that translates all the
0: way through our culture. I'm curious, if the book's been out for a little while now. What kind of feedback have you gotten on the book?
1: I, I've been getting lovely feedback, certainly especially from my daylighting compatriots and the larger building science community, who I think are the natural audience for the book. But even more so, I've really treasured hearing back from people who are far outside of architecture. For example, I have a friend who's an ophthalmologist and he said he learned all kinds of things by reading it. I've recently made friendship with one of the people who I quote extensively in the book, who's a professor of psychology and that has been a wonderful, enriching experience um, to continue the exchange, not just through our published papers, but also through correspondence. And so I love it when it touches people outside of the usual suspects. Um, I've also been talking a lot with folks from the glazing industry, and I hope to help them understand that Daylight and View is one of the... (laughs) (laughs) most important qualities of their product is something they've tended to forget a little bit about, you know, that, that, that is really what it's all about. That's the essential reason. So reaching out beyond
0: the borders has been very gratifying. I I would imagine so. I think that's one of the reasons that architecture is so unique is because most people live in buildings. Again, the way that you've described different situations and the science and the experiences through your words it connects to a lot of different people because they don't have to have a master's in anything to understand what you're talking about because they're living it every day. So very yeah, and very cool.
1: And what I hope is to give people a sense that the buildings they live in are a choice and that they have agency to change it, that they don't have to take buildings as a given. And yes, I find that so many people in our culture are really passive about that. It's like, well, what can you do? You know, you've got to have basements. you got to have elevators. you got to have big buildings. What can you do? I hope that by connecting with them, I can give them a sense that there are a lot of choices to be had and ways
0: to have better environments. I think you've been very successful. I'm excited to read it again. One of the most interesting parts of the most recent book, that directly relates to kind of the theme of this podcast series is you have a lot of examples of real life experiences that you've gone through and lessons that you've learned. And so I'm curious if we could pull out a few of those examples, whether they're in the book or not, just of experiences that you've had that have informed how you approach design um, or even how you talk to people about design. Well, probably one of the
1: richest experience sets that I have relative to that is in school design because I worked as a school designer for a number of years and kind of got chewed up in that mill and learned what some of the opportunities were, but also a lot of what the resistance was, especially to daylighting and view. So that was a long progression of learning first from being a design architect of schools, and then doing a lot of research on site in schools and seeing so many different flavors and interviewing so many teachers and principals and students. So going back a ways, one of my first jobs, public schools, elementary schools and high schools, K-12 in the Sacramento region. And I discovered two things about the the firm that I was working for. had a policy to never, ever use skylights. It was, you know, simply verboten um, because you knew they were gonna leak and that was just off the list. And the second was that in general, the the preference was to use what we call limousine glass for the windows. This is dark, 14% visible light transmittance, black glass. And the idea was that it would reduce the heat loads on the building and it would also give privacy to the students so that you couldn't peer in and see what the kids were doing and as a result black glass and no skylights there was no daylight in any of these classrooms shocking Um, (laughs) so i kept pushing against that and arguing for daylight and views and managed to that off in a couple of the schools that i worked on but i also just realized how much how far down the path we had gone of completely eliminating daylight in school and that really gave me the motivation eventually to do the studies that i did looking at how daylighting affected student performance because i figured if we showed that better daylight impacted student test scores that would be enormously valuable. And so once that project got funded, right, this is after I'd stopped being a design architect and started running Heshang Mahong Group, I got the opportunity to visit dozens and dozens of schools on site and see how much variety there was. We surveyed and interviewed the teachers and the principals, learned all their attitudes towards windows and views. When we finally came back with the study findings showing that there was an association, I also went back and interviewed more teachers. And their response was, well, duh, I want to look out the window. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. I can vouch for that. (laughs) It
1: makes me feel better. Of course, why wouldn't it make the children feel better too? And so these teachers had absolutely no surprise at our findings. It was really the principals and the school superintendents and the school boards that needed to be convinced that the windows were valuable. It wasn't the teachers, it certainly wasn't the students. Another example of that was I also consulted on the design of a daylit school up in um, Tahoe Truckee and I've been back there a number of times since and interviewed the users of that building. And what has amazed me is that the children have learned how to operate all the daylighting systems. And when the teachers don't understand, the children step up and say, here, let me show you. This is how we do it. You love that. <laughs> and I've talked to kids that are in the fourth and fifth grade uh, with a visiting professor and, and they'll explain, well, look, if I hold my book this way, there's too much glare, but when I do move it this way, then I can read much better. I, I, it just blows me away that these kids that are, you know, nine and 10 years old are utterly articulate about their visual comfort and how they use the space. So that gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> um and, and I've just seen so many different flavors of different ways to design. You know, you, you think that a classroom, it's all, they're all 30 by 30 or 24 by 40. They're like the most standard building in the world or, you know, use space. And yet there's still so much variety in how they're designed and can be implemented.
0: Yeah, it makes such a huge difference. I, I usually show my students a picture, one on the left, one on the right, of an auditorium. With all of these chairs, no windows, they're all kind of close together. And then another version where you have skylights and a view outside and uh, no electric lights on. And I asked them, I'm like, which which class would you rather be in? Where would you rather learn? Everyone always says the one with daylight. It's just a given. But then I think sometimes if people haven't experienced that, they don't know how to articulate it sometimes until you show them the images and they they realize kind of where they would gravitate to. It's just, it's fun to see the light bulbs, no pun intended, go off in their heads when they visually see the difference. What other examples do you have? Um, Well, another
1: interesting learning experience for me was the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, Mm -hmm. um, which was the local utility or where I lived in Sacramento, and they had built a series of exemplary buildings over the course of many decades. Actually, it was 1960 they built their first headquarters building, which was designed for solar control. It actually had operable louvers on the east and west side that moved. That still moved 30 years later. Then they also used very dark tinted glass but looking out to a garden surrounding the building so almost all of the office spaces had these beautiful views outward that were very sun protected and people were generally happy in that building there wasn't a lot of daylight illumination it was fluorescent lighting throughout but really nice views And then in the 1980s, they built a new building, uh, the Customer Service Building, which became a LEED Platinum retroactively, which was very intentionally designed to be as daylit as possible. And again, with beautiful views looking north or south. So I studied that building in a number of different ways over and over again. I've, I've interviewed the occupants in that building and understood what their relationship is to the windows and the sunlight and the operation of the blinds and the light shelves that they have then in subsequently smud built two more buildings one which was a engineering services building that had very restricted windows they these windows kind of looked out to the column so <laughs> it was like they were protecting these windows from arrows so you could only see <laughs> out <laughs> It was pretty frustrating for the occupants, especially because they knew the conditions in the other buildings and they weren't so happy about having to be assigned to this one. And then on 10 years on after that, SMUD decided to build another office building, which this time was going to be a zero net energy building, super energy efficient. And again, windows were sacrificed for that building. I haven't actually been in it, but you can see sort of the corporate decision-making shifting over time. Like, no, our priorities now are ZNE, so we can dispense with with windows. Right. It comes and it goes.
0: Yeah. I, I'm i curious when you interview the occupants, what is the chief complaint that you normally get from people? Which, and it might be different in schools versus offices, but... I'm just curious.
1: Well, we know from surveys that people complain the most about thermal comfort. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's over and over again, across the board, I've often pondered why they complain so much about thermal comfort and not about visual comfort. Mm -hmm. And one of my theories is that because when you're getting too cold or too hot, it's actually threatening your health and well-being um, you could you know get the chills you could overheat and so our alarm bells are our, our mammalian alarm bells go off and say you need to do something and get out of this space where you're not maintaining thermal comfort right, right. you need to move and so alarm bells are going off and that gets translated into a phone call to building management right <laughs> i'm not comfortable <laughs> fix it whereas if you can't see very well because there's it's too dim or it's too glare, your eyes adapt. If you just wait a little bit, you know you will adapt. You will be able to see. If you if you try a little harder, you can see better. Um, if you shift your position, you're not your health is not being threatened. Mm-hmm. And so there's no mammalian alarm bells going off like this is a dangerous situation. I need to change something. Right. Um, people tend to be much more accepting of poor visual environments than they are of poor thermal environments. And that's a problem for both architects and lighting industry, because they're not getting as much feedback.
0: Yeah. I think what's interesting about that is we might not have that innate kind of alarm sensation about it, but it does affect our health, just not in that emergency feeling kind of way.
1: It's much more of a long-term effect. It also affects our performance, but, you know, that requires some subtle measurement tools as opposed to having alarm bells going off
0: in your head. Yeah. I think that theory stacks up. (laughs) That makes sense. Definitely. Any, any other examples of lessons learned along the way? Well, another, another lesson, you know, it's wonderful when
1: you're an architect, you design a building and then you get feedback after the fact. So before my husband and I started Heshang Mahan Group, we worked for another energy consulting firm. And since I was the local architect, I helped them design the new building that we moved into. And I worked very hard to get as many window views to the offices as I could, and also added skylights where those windows weren't available. So every Every interior room, at least, had a skylight, along with the hallways. And after the fact, I've had people from that company come up and thank me for how much they love those skylights. And you know, it's continued for five years after, ten years after, twenty years after. People are still. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. You know, that's just it's a real gift to have yeah. created that environment that people feel so comfortable with.
0: Yeah. I think it's so important too that we don't forget that. You know, we talked about how history tends to repeat itself and bad bad buildings keep popping up. <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> and with mushrooms. Yep, exactly. There's a few practical problems that we've talked about in the past with daylight applications. And some of these come up in the book, some of them don't, but I thought I would just rapid fire go over. There's three points that I think have come up in the design world that I just would like to get your comment on. So the first one, this potentially over-concern with glare analysis and under-concern with the actual visual quality of a space. What are your thoughts on that? glare versus visual comfort or visual quality?
1: Well, I think it's as if people are given a meter to measure noise levels and they don't know what music is. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So, So all they're doing is reporting decibels and concern that this might affect hearing loss without taking into account what we're listening to and what the yeah why why we are choosing to listen. So it may be that a rock concert is too loud and it might hurt your ears, but why are people there in the first place? Because they love the music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the first reason to have a window is to have a view out. That's what's important about it. And glare is really a secondary concern. But it's also struck me that we have parceled out our professions such that we don't have anyone who's directly responsible for daylight and quality view and quality of the visual environment. We have lighting systems that are generally designed by electrical engineers. And it's all about wiring and controls and product put in place, it's not about the visual environment. There are lighting designers that care more about that, but often they are designing a space as if it is in the middle of the night and daylight is not considered as a contribution to the space. And, you know, that's part of this black box building understanding. And then we have architects who are designing the facades and the construction systems. So they what the building looks like from the outside, but not trying to understand what it looks or feels like from the inside. One of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> With interior designers who are designing the inside of the building, but they're doing it primarily as a floor plan. Doing furniture layouts and choosing surface materials, but not as a three dimensional experience including the daylight and the view as part of the experience right because they're just inside of the box right the box has no location
0: (laughs) or how does the daylight even interact with those materials and reflect and
1: right Yeah. yeah so you know i i could go on with how we segment these different professions but daylight which is like the ultimate integrating system it touches everything in the building in some way or another but it's ignored by almost all the professions um, right. or just treated as a bother a problem you know something that adds load <laughs> Yep. <laughs> um, as opposed to the reason that people want to be in the building in the first place
0: Do you think that people shy away from it because they assume that some other discipline has it covered or because it's so dynamic, they just don't know what to do with it? Well, I think it's, it's both. I mean, I think
1: our education system doesn't give the different professions ownership
0: of that. Yeah. It's hard to solve problems when you're thinking somebody else (laughs) will, will do something. We've talked about before how there might need to be this new discipline for interface designers for instance you know who who takes lead on how different controls and interfaces and all of the things that people in buildings can touch who's in charge of that it's analogous i think to this issue with daylight and well or maybe
1: a user experience designer Mm -hmm. yeah
0: i like that how do you control all of the things that give you, provide those different senses and experiences? And, you know, that
1: that implies there's an advocate for the occupants of the building as opposed to the owner of the building, right? right. The owner of the building has financial interests in it. The occupants of the building have interest in the lived experience. Mm-hmm. But that's not a money-making profession
0: at the moment. <laughs> no. We can hope. Maybe someday. Right, yeah. <laughs> My other two rapid fire design applications, um, you've actually already sort of addressed. So the second one was this reliance on all glass facades. We talked a bit about understanding it from an architectural perspective from the exterior, but having not so great of an understanding of what it feels like as an occupant looking out. But the bonus component to that is with these all glass facades, how do you control that light? How do people actually manipulate the light or like let's say they just want privacy they don't want an all-glass facade or fishbowl to me that that stands out as a practical kind of issue that's battling quite a lot do you have any bonus thoughts on those well, two one one is that
1: an all-glass building is pretty much the cheapest kind of building you can put up yeah. um, and so very popular with developers <laughs> we know that it tends to have negative energy impacts, but it's almost impossible to live next to a curtain wall system. You can't put pictures there. Right. It should really be the designer, and I'll leave it to whether it's the architect or the interior designer or whom, but it should be the designer who's curating that view and experience and the flow of daylight. I find it, surprising that in much, much smaller economies than the United States, there's vastly bigger array of window management systems, right? So in Australia, which is slightly bigger than San Diego County, in terms of population, there's 22 million people that live in Australia, last time I counted but they have a vibrant industry in both interior and exterior shading devices Mm -hmm. and so many different flavors than I've ever seen in this country. It's like they're not even half the size of California and yet (laughs) they have more options than the entire United States. Why is that? Same thing in Europe where windows tend to have Six, eight, 10 layers of controls um, to modulate the light and the privacy and the acoustics. And that's considered normal. Whereas in the United States, we seem to want to do it with one size fits all solutions. You know, you yeah. just, just get the glazing right and you're done. Why do you think that is? I, I don't have an answer. For that one. <laughs> I find it puzzling
0: myself. I'm perplexed. Hmm. Yes. I would say that's similar too in in my experience with the shapes of buildings, so these big blocky buildings that only have a limited amount of perimeter versus, let's say alphabet-shaped buildings where you can allow daylight and views into more of that building. There seems to be sort of this battle in the industry. I don't sometimes country specific, sometimes region specific, but how to effectively distribute daylight and views through buildings. Do you see trends in certain areas for people doing that better than others? Well, it seems
1: to me it is driven a lot by the real estate industry and a sense that bigger will always be better and more economical. And also an assumption that we need generic spaces because companies come and go and they move so quickly that they need to be able to move into any generic space. Whereas in a society that is a little more stable or slow moving or has a longer time perspective, there's a different level of investment in the buildings than there is in the U S and you know, that's, that's a very tough one to unpack, but codes and standards also make a huge difference. Um, Mm. And in Europe, there are codes requiring access to windows. It's considered a worker's right. So in Germany, the codes that require that all office workers be within six meters of a window are the labor codes, not the building codes, but the Mm. labor codes. So it's, it's very much a social choice, and those social choices get epitomized in different laws and standards.
0: Yeah, that actually leads into the example that I've really been excited to talk about (laughs) with you, because you've been knee-deep in this last month or so, this issue of access to daylight and views, and I think that segues perfectly thinking about this as a Kind of a human right to have access to daylight and views. I'm going to let you probably give some more context because you've been so deep into this. But there's uh, a new dormitory or residence hall going up. Essentially, is being proposed without. It's proposed. Any, proposed without any windows for, Not for the going residents up yet. We're going to try to <laughs> stop it. Yes, that's the goal. <laughs> Would you mind giving a little context?
1: University of California, Santa Barbara has revealed their next major dormitory project called Munger Hall which is partially funded i think to the level of 13% by Warren Buffett's business partner Charlie Munger who fancies himself a amateur architect and solved all of the housing problems in one box, one big box, an 11 story building with nine floors of identical dormitories packed into this square such that there's 4,600 private rooms and 93% of them have no windows. So they're all interior yeah and as a as i would call it a placebo more to the campus administrators than to the students they intend to provide artificial windows or fake windows for each dorm so there'd be a basically large screen tv up on your wall with a little curtain in front of it and it turns on and glows as if some sunlight is coming through that hidden box, and then you can feel like maybe you do have a window.
0: A cruise ship on land. (laughs) Um, Like the interior of one.
1: (laughs) And part of the reference for this was cruise ships that Mm -hmm. have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so they start packing people into the innards of the ship. And those people who pay a lot less money get to have a fake portal Mm -hmm. so they don't have to feel quite so claustrophobic. Um, And Charlie Munger thinks that works great. Disney does it so it must work. And we can build a dorm for 4,600 undergraduates and have them live with that as their access to the outdoors. So yeah, I wrote a blog about it, why fake windows are a bad idea for a dorm. What I hope to do is pull together some of the nascent science, explaining how deeply linked we are to connection to the outdoors through color spectrum and time of day. It's a lot to get into, but that science is developing very rapidly and Mm -hmm. it's really concerning. We have pretty good evidence that myopia, which is nearsightedness, is strongly connected to exposure to daylight, and not just blue sky, but the subtle changes of daylight at dawn and at dusk, and that there are photoreceptors, not only in our eyes, but in our skin and other organs that are setting the timing of many of our metabolic processes, also setting the timing of the development of our eyes. And so without those signals, children, which include undergraduate students up to about the age of 24 can progress towards ever more nearsightedness for which there then is required medical correction. Whereas if they had daily exposure to those wavelengths, it's hugely mitigated if not prevented.
0: Yeah. I think that's major and there's, I have so many issues with this the whole building, but the comparison to the cruise ship, I think, Said jokingly, but I know that was part of his defense, but you might be on a cruise for a week, maybe two weeks. It's not a space that you're living in. And you're probably on a different schedule. You're probably doing different things with the college students I work with and teach and mentor, especially lately with uh, the changing of the seasons here. We get, we're getting a lot less daylight. Just overall morale is less because of COVID and just the the world in general at the moment. And so when I'm thinking about mental health and learning and having a a space that is supposedly their safe space away from home that doesn't facilitate either one of those, because we know for mental health, sun is largely important and access to the daylight and views is very important, but also for learning. I mean, think back to your school example you were talking about earlier not only do they prefer it, but people learn better. There's better test performance if they have access to those. And more times than not, our students are in their spaces and their rooms studying and learning and trying to pass that next test. So it, it just blows my mind that this is even an issue. And it, like you said earlier, it's this history repeating itself <laughs> over That's, and over.
1: Yeah, I was I was just reading a new article the Effective Benefits of Nature Exposure. This is written by some folks from Stanford and University of Washington. It has an 11-page bibliography. Well, wow. <laughs> In other words, there's a lot of work on that subject. And, right. but what we keep seeing over and over again is that when organizations are in crisis, like UC Santa Barbara is, without enough housing, they look for desperate solutions and we see it over and over again we saw it during the baby boom when there wasn't enough housing for all the students that were coming up and it's like we need more schools we need them faster cheaper what are we going to do let's get rid of windows yeah Um, same thing on the uc campus we need more housing faster cheaper what are we going to do let's get rid of windows Um, and then those buildings are there for another 50 years right right at least if you know if they don't get blown up like Pew and I Joe, which failed so radically that they just took it down to the ground <laughs> but over and over again you know this is being done not for a market economy where somebody else needs to buy the building in the future because nobody would ever buy a building like that no it's being done for a campus or a school district that's desperate and has no market and it and The people making the decisions are not the people who will be living in the building, right? Right. It's being done for the others, for the students who have no voice. So that's where you see it over and over again. It's like, we have to put up a lot of buildings for people who have no choice. Uh, Let's do it without windows.
0: Yeah. So then it becomes a social and an equity kind of issue that we're doing this to other people essentially.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's definitely scary. So what are you thinking? It's proposed. It's not officially yet. What are kind of the next steps and what kind of help do you need from people to stop this building?
1: Well, there have been a number of experts that have written letters of concern and, you know, I would certainly encourage anyone to do so. I find encouragement that There are more and more people that are interested in studying the importance of view in buildings. It's a growing research topic. Whereas five, 10 years ago, there was hardly anyone thinking about the issue. And and now there's a whole new crop of graduate students who are throwing their hats in the ring on this subject. And we're seeing work coming out of University of Washington, University of Oregon, UC Berkeley, University of Arizona, Harvard, Chan School of Public Health. So it's spreading beyond lighting, it's spreading beyond architecture, it's spreading to public health, it's spreading to landscape architecture, to urban planning and understanding that we need input from all those different professions to get the priorities right, to get the policies right, we spend 90% of our lives inside of buildings we need to insist that those buildings are healthy places to live right you know they're not a temporary thing that
0: we pass through they're where we live yeah it's it's scary to think about how much we spend <laughs> how much time we spend in buildings is scary that statistic i've heard that it's going higher and higher than 90 but yeah just whether it's views or access to daylight or indoor air quality, all the stuff that we're starting to put in our buildings. I think revolution might be a strong word, but I I think that something needs to change pretty drastically if we're going to stay or be healthy.
1: Well, go outside every day whenever you have a chance. Insist that you live and work in rooms that have windows with daylight and view. That's something that people can insist upon. Um, Learn the arguments against the windowless environments so that when they get thrown at you at the next design meeting that you're sitting in, you have some good arguments and don't just have to give in to the cost cutters or saying it doesn't really matter. People, people live in submarines. Actually, the U.S. Navy spends a lot of money on trying to solve the mental health problems of their soldiers and their sailors who are routinely deprived of daylight and and live in strange circadian environments. They know perfectly well there are major mental health problems that crop up. Um, We just need to keep, I, I guess, presenting the evidence because, like I said, it just keeps coming back. You know, they did this in the 60s, they did it in, eighties they're doing it now it just keeps coming back over and over again and you will need to be armed
0: with good arguments right i think that's some pretty great advice <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you you're the busiest retired person i've ever talked to <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> I, i'm spending my time trying to connect people with each other yeah. um, and like i said getting the people in public health to talk to psychologists and getting psychologists to talk to urban planners so that's what's next for me is trying to knit as many perspectives together as I can and making those introductions
0: I think that's a that's a great idea and good next step because as we talked about finding not only those connections but the different folks who might take ownership of the pieces and parts so that it's not just left off to somebody else. Having people kind of advocate for other people is really important. for Sure. You mentioned previously that you have a new blog and website coming out. I was curious so, if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I decided it would be nice to have one place where I could point people to references. So... Yes. I, I launched a website, uh, two weeks ago. It's lheshang.com, And I've posted interviews and podcasts that I've done. I also intend to create a library of all the research work that Heshang Mahon group did, which is sometimes hard to come by and then I can also start to pull together links to works by others and other resources like daylighting demonstration labs that are scattered around the country and often people don't know what's available. So just trying to pull a lot of those different resources together in one place.
0: That would be a very handy tool, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> any, any last thoughts? i just want to say goodbye and thanks and it's been fun talking yeah well thank you i appreciate your time and i'll talk to you soon okay all right thank you lisa Bye. Bye. bye Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these podcasts.